0: All right. If you were here last week, you remember um, we said the bulletins were going to be messed up. So they are. But but the preaching passage in your bulletin is not where we are this morning. We're we're running behind because we're we're taking three weeks to look at this passage in Matthew chapter seven, verses one through six. Richard Baxter. An old theologian wrote about how Christians sleep. We're just kind of prone to, to drifting off spiritually, aren't we? Never really, never really know exactly when we nod it off, just sort of happens. Soft bed. Silk sheets, warm blanket. That's what sin seems to offer to us. And we just rest in its embrace. Get drowsy. Sin never looks dangerous or scary. Looks pretty. It looks cozy. Seems safe. Baxter says you don't realize it, but you sleep in chains. And while you're asleep, the devil is awake and his hand is rocking you like a baby in a cradle. Shh. There, there. What do you think? Is Baxter right? Have his words. like they've done for me when I've read them, reached out 400 years into the future from the time that he wrote them to find you sleeping this morning. Here's how you can know. What is the number one sin in your life right now that you know God is angry with? If it takes you too long to answer... Your self-righteousness is showing. You think you're okay. You, you should know better, but how could you? You've been sleeping. If you knew right away the number one sin in, in your life right now, and you got kind of uncomfortable, a little squirmy when I asked the question, because you know you're still holding on to it, even though you know it's, it's not good for you. It dishonors God, and it's, it's ruinous in your life. You're still holding on to it. You're, you're waiting until later to deal with it. Baxter's right. You're sleeping. When you can't identify sin in your life, or you dismiss specific sins when they come to mind, the devil has his hand on you in a big way. And you have to wake up and repent and commit your ways to the Lord. And you know how that happens in the first place? You know how Christians fall asleep, how they begin to lose hope and lose a sense of assurance of their salvation. They have no joy in their lives and they make no difference in the world. They forget the fear of the Lord. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's always what gets God's people into trouble. And then God brings judgment. He brings judgment on his own people so that they will wake up, so that they will repent, so that they will remember to fear him. Judgment's what we're looking at. We're looking at it three different ways again over the course of three weeks. We talked last week about how we're to be slow in our judgment of others. Next week, we'll talk about how Jesus says to to judge those who are inside and outside the church. This morning, we're looking at Jesus' warning of God's judgment for us. And here's the thing. He doesn't just judge us for our judging, does he? He judges us for our sin, just just one of our sins is unrighteous judgment of others but it's not like that's the only thing God gets angry with Christians about. The world wants you to believe that. Right? The culture wants you to believe the only real sin God will judge you for is judging others. It's not. God judges. He judges his people. He judges his church. He judges nations because of sin. How he judges us and deals with us as his children is our main focus this morning. So let's look back again at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. God is both father and judge. You get that? He's both father and judge. Jesus is always so thorough in his teaching. And so he wants us to know both. We can't take one and not the other. We can't think lightly of one and more highly of the other. We've talked a lot about God as father in recent weeks, haven't we? We have to talk about God as judge. Jesus doesn't want us to forget God as judge just because he is our father. He he doesn't want us to be wayward children. He wants us to be children who respect our father and obey him, right? Just because we've been forgiven eternal damnation doesn't mean that, you know, we can sneak out of the house and lie to him about where we're going, what we're doing, and not be honest with him and and, and to, to engage in behavior that he's forbidden and not keep his commands, we're called by God the Father, we're redeemed by God the Son, we're, we're regenerated by God the Holy Spirit, and continually renewed by his work in our lives. And his work in our lives looks like conforming more and more into the image of the Son who lived righteously, who obeyed perfectly. He never sinned. We know we still do. We still do sin, even though that we've been forgiven. And here's what I'm afraid many Christians today are in danger of forgetting. It's not okay. It's not okay that you still sin. We hold dear what the Bible teaches us about our right standing with God, what we call justification, being by faith alone. There's nothing more precious to us than knowing that Christ was our substitute. That's what Scripture teaches. That he was made sin who knew no sin. In order that we might become the righteousness of God. There's nothing more dear to our hearts than the the realization that the perfect spotless lamb, who is blameless, hung on that cross for my sin. He was condemned as if he were me, as if he were you and everyone else that the Father sent him to save. He took that on himself. He is our substitute. He took what you deserved, and you get his righteousness instead. Amazing grace. It is. It is. But we cannot allow that precious, true, and fundamental doctrine to somehow cancel out what Scripture makes clear to us everywhere throughout the Bible. We are to fear the Lord. Can't be friends with the Lord without fearing the Lord. That's the main idea of the sermon this morning. And there's only one point. Fearing the Lord means understanding judgment. Can't be friends with the Lord without fearing the Lord. And you know, if that sounds strange to us somehow, it's because we bought into a a loose, superficial, mainstream American Christianity today that would be foreign to the disciples that Jesus is preaching this sermon to. Doesn't there seem to be a lightness and a cavalierness in much of modern evangelicalism? Something that just seems too casual. I don't mean casual dress; that has nothing to do with it. I mean casual in the way that we address God. It's like reverence and godliness and fear of the Lord are somehow just out of vogue, and it's no wonder then that many Christians struggle with assurance of their faith and fail to really have an experiential relationship with God and any real sense of His presence in their life. You know why that is? Because you can't see and know and feel God at work in your life if you think there's no work to be done. If you think you're a finished product, and you're just waiting on heaven one day, you will never know the agonizing beauty of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's where the awe is. That's where the amazement is. That's where you get to know God personally. That's where you can be sure He is always with you. He always has been, always will be. That He always cares for you, that He really does direct you. You don't get all of that if you don't think he doesn't ever frown upon your sin. If you don't think he he ever corrects you, if there's nothing to correct. Or if you think that somehow he's he's made an exception in your case regarding his attitude towards sin. God hates sin. He hates your sin. Your sin, Christian. We're not talking about in some abstract way either. He hates that thing you did yesterday that only you and him know about. You would blush and crawl up under your pew if he presented you with a list of things that he hated about the way you lived last week. And what we're taught to do is just to ignore that and just move on because we're forgiven by Buddy Jesus. No. What that haunting idea should do is drive you over and over and over again to the foot of the cross to hide from the wrath of God for those sins, to hide in the shadow of the cross praising Jesus, that you are wrapped in his robe of righteousness that you did not deserve. That's what that awareness should do. That's where you live out your days here. Not exalting yourself, but allowing that reality that you are a child of a holy God who is angry with sin, to bury you so deep in the ground that something new sprouts up out of it. Trouble is, We're more afraid of being buried than we are of God. And so we never grow. Sometimes we think God improves upon what we already have when He saves us. Instead of of stripping us down to nothing and and making something new, that's what He does. I had a dog one time. It was like the dog. Irreplaceable, never be another one like him. But before he was super dog, he was a super pain in my neck. I remember, I came home from work one day, and you all remember phone books? We don't have those anymore, young'uns. But you remember phone books? If you're my age or older, you, you know they were like a high chair. It was your booster seat at the dinner table. But anyway, I came home from work one day, And the dog had shredded a phone book. And we're not talking about like just any phone book. I'm talking about the Metropolitan Atlanta phone book. You couldn't find a piece of it left that was bigger than that. It looked like New Year's Eve in Times Square in my apartment. You know what I didn't do? Try to put the phone book back together again. That, what was done was done. That happened. There's no turning back. There was no undoing it. God doesn't need all your broken little pieces to make something out of you. He cleans up your mess, but He doesn't need your broken pieces. He calls you to let those pieces of you die. but what we often do is we, we insist that there must be some value in them, and so we kind of start cramming them in our pockets as we go on to follow Jesus. But when he saves you, you are a new creation. You don't dust yourself off and straighten yourself up so that you look presentable. You bow your face low to the earth and praise him for having mercy on your soul. And when you do that, it's God who lifts your face. The Holy Spirit makes you to stand on your feet before your Maker and teaches you how to walk in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He makes you stand taller and taller in His presence precisely because you keep insisting on falling on your face, insisting that you are not worthy to stand. You see how that works? That's fear of the Lord. And when it's present in your life, his presence is more, you're more abundantly aware of it in your life. God strengthens you, he assures you, he lifts you up, he comforts you. It's when we walk in our own strength and our own righteousness that we start to feel anxious and confused and and beat up and downcast and unsure. That's when we feel like God isn't there. Because you can't be friends with God without fearing God. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant, Psalm twenty-five, fourteen. Well, you know, that's, that's Old Testament. That's old covenant stuff. We're new covenant now, right? Okay, Luke 150, Mary's Magnificat. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God never changes, y'all. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. So here's what's always true. No fear, no mercy. No fear, no friendship. It's no mystery. It's all over the Bible. We're just forgetful. So let's do some remembering this morning. No fear, no knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.7. No fear, no understanding. No fear, no forgiveness. We forget to fear the Lord and so we fail to walk as he's called us to walk and we miss out on the blessing that's afforded to us as a result. What is fear of the Lord if not understanding God as judge? How do you get from here to there without understanding God as judge? Isn't that what Jesus is warning his disciples about here? That God sees and God judges? Yes, our unrighteous judgment of others, but that's not exclusive, okay? God judges sin, and don't stop there, because then you might be tempted uh, to, to, to judge unrighteously and think, well, yeah, he judges people, just not me. Yeah, he judges sin, just not my sin. That's the mistake Jesus doesn't want his disciples to make. God judges my sin. Ah. That realization is how you come to fear the Lord. And fearing the Lord, being friends with the Lord, means hating sin. Not just accepting the fact that you sin and you're forgiven. means hating sin. Fear the Lord means hating sin. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. 14.27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So having God for a friend is to have sin as your enemy. So if God's a judge, he judges sin, and not just sin generally, but my sin, and my sin is my enemy, what is this sin so I can be on the lookout for it in my life? If you've never heard the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, what is sin, it's it's excellent. It's just so precise. It says sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Pretty simple. It's all tied up in those two things. So there's, there's transgressions, that's sin, doing what God forbids. He says, don't lie. Don't, don't, don't murder, don't, don't hate, that's murder. Don't commit adultery, don't lust, that's adultery too. Don't do the things God says not to do. And then there's lack of conformity, do, not doing or being what God requires. He expects things of us, and when we do not do what he expects of us, we sin. You know, if your father says, take out the trash, clean up your room, he will not take kindly to you ignoring him. God does not take kindly to you ignoring him. These are sins of commission and omission. Omission. All right, so sin is doing what you shouldn't do and not doing what you should do. And God sees both and judges both. He's not asleep. The Holy Spirit is seeing and active in your life and he sees your deeds and only ever makes perfect assessments, perfect judgments as to what is good and what is evil, what should stay in you and what has to go. If he didn't make those judgments he would be ineffective in purifying and sanctifying you. God is your father, but he's also judge. And that has implications on, on how we live. It doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. It does mean that there are expectations on the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Any father who doesn't set expectations... For his children and, and lovingly hold them accountable to them is not being a good father. God is only ever a good father, and he has expectations of his children, he holds them accountable to them. And one of those expectations is that we are more strict with ourselves in dealing with our own sin than we are with others in dealing with theirs. We talked about that last week, that's obvious from the text. We're to be quicker to notice our own sin in our own lives and more persistent in conquering it than we are in calling it out in other people. There's sin in us that needs to be dealt with. And what that, what that discovery in ourselves produces is a compassion for others and their weakness. It brings about a righteous judgment that is healing rather than condemning. Remember we talked about that last week. Instead of a critic, you become a counselor. That's part of being salt and light. That's part of what God's will being done on earth looks like. Men and women working out their salvation with fear and trembling, like Paul says in Philippians 2. That's not a salvation that forgets the fear of the Lord, is it? Yes, God is both father and judge, and Jesus reminds us of that. We're to fear the Lord. He says, with the measure you judge others, it will be measured to you. When you read that, you just kind of move on to the the next part, the illustration with the log and the speck and all that kind of stuff. What does that mean? What does that mean? Judge not lest you be judged. Uh, Be careful with the way that you measure and judge others because that's going to be, what's that mean? I thought if I was a Christian, there is no judgment for me. Well, what it means is there are different kinds of judgment besides your eternal standing before God. That's what that means. The kind of judgment Jesus is talking about here isn't final judgment. He's talking to Christians, after all. He's talking to God's elect people, God's children, the redeemed, and yet there's this language about judgment. Yes, God judges his children, And he doesn't punish his children. I want you to understand this. He disciplines his children. He disciplines those he loves. And discipline, that kind of discipline, Hebrews 12 tells us that the moment seems painful rather than pleasant. It later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Those who are not trained by it, Just stays painful. It'll last however long you want it to. Just stay painful. But God brings those judgments to us. He brings those judgments into our life to bring about repentance and restoration, to turn our eyes back to Him. God isn't blinded by grace you realize this? God isn't blinded by grace. His omnipotence and his holiness are not masked by his mercy. He sees and he knows the difference between your obedience and disobedience, and he judges between them, and he disciplines those he loves. We get a picture of that in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul's talking to everybody about the Lord's Supper and cautioning anyone who partakes of it to examine himself, judging himself rightly. And he says at that time, that's why many of you are sick. Because you're, you're, the way you've, you've flippantly regarded what is holy. And you know, we only ever do that, regard God and his worship lightly, when we have failed to fear the Lord. And that's not to say, by the way, that if you're sick, it's because you've sinned. It is to say, though, that God does. He has, he does, and sometimes will allow trouble to come into your life to straighten you out. To call you to repentance and faith and obedience to him. And guess what? That's called grace. That's called mercy. That's called love, not giving up on you. That's a kind of judgment, though, isn't it? That's a judgment on Christians. It's not a punishing judgment, though. It's a disciplining judgment. You know, we have this wonderful doctrine of perseverance of the saints that tells us when Christ died to save us, he actually saved us. He didn't just make salvation possible. He actually saved us. His sacrifice did precisely what he intended for it to do, to secure us for eternity. And he tells us that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, not even us. Even so, even though those who are saved can never completely fall away, we can certainly make a mess of our lives and bring judgment upon ourselves That deprives us from experiencing blessing and assurance in this life. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about this in chapter 17 that even though the Holy Spirit never gives up on us, always carries us all the way through, despite our sin, we can still fall into grievous sin. Even for extended seasons of life, sleepy seasons, And in those seasons, we can incur incur God's displeasure. And it is costly. We can, as Christians, grieve the Holy Spirit. And as chapter 17 of the Confession says, come to be deprived of some measure of our graces and comforts. Have our hearts hardened, our consciences wounded. We can hurt and scandalize others. And bring temporal judgments upon ourselves. Have you ever rented a room in that place? How long did you stay? Are you there now? You know how that judgment happens in the first place? Not fearing that judgment. Thinking that judgment doesn't exist. That's how that terrible judgment comes to find you. Final judgment is not the only judgment. You think about 2 Corinthians 5 where Paul talks about God's judgment. He's not talking there about an eternal judgment. It's not the final judgment that separates unbelievers from God for all eternity. It's giving an account for how we lived. Paul says there, two Christians, we make it our aim to please God with how we live, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's not a judgment that decides whether we go to heaven or hell. But it's a judgment that has some effect on what glory will be like for us. You know, there's a forgotten teaching of Scripture that there are, in fact, measures of reward in heaven. And we can play all super pious and be like, oh, it doesn't matter what rewards I receive, because I'm just going to cast them all at the feet of Jesus anyway. And that's probably true, and that'd be an appropriate response, but it does not negate the fact that there are rewards in heaven. And some people get more than others. And that determination is made by a judgment that God gives regarding how we have lived here. Let's not emphasize that too much. But let's not pretend that's not in the Bible. Your works can't get you to heaven. Your works don't keep you out of heaven if Christ has died for you. But your works do follow you to heaven, and they are rewarded. Revelation 14, 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Jesus is warning us in these verses in Matthew 7 as children of God to not be hypocrites like the Pharisees. Why? Because our Father judges our deeds whether good or evil. So yes, when Jesus is saying, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, there's something to that we cannot afford to let escape our notice. It's easy to notice he judges our judgment, but that's not all. The God of this culture wants you to believe the only sin you can be judged for is judging people. But the God of Scripture knows there's more than one sin, and He judges everyone for all their sins. He punishes for eternity those that He hates, and He disciplines all those He loves and sent His Son to die for. That too is amazing grace. He is a friend to those who fear Him and keep His commandments. You know, people today, people who claim to be Christians, they hear a message like this and they think, well, I don't like to think of God that way. I, I you know, I, I don't like to think of God as being a judge. I don't like to think of God as being angry. My God's a loving God. I don't really see any reason I need to fear God. Well, you—you've got the wrong God. What, what, do you, what is this Wendy's? You know, just order off a menu the attributes of God that we want to assign to Him to create our designer God. There's a name for that. It's called idolatry. And it is the key that opens the door to all other sins. And it begins with not fearing the Lord God Almighty. a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come like a robber and your want like an armed man. That's a proverb about laziness and poverty. Is there spiritual laziness and spiritual poverty? You don't think that your your spiritual life is somehow immune to invasion and some level of depletion, do you? If you do, it's because he's kept you fast asleep, thinking there's nothing at all to fear. Shh. Some of you may have some sense, there's a little bit of waking up in you right now. Praise God for that. Praise God for the the moving of the spirit in your life, convicting you of sin and moving you away from it and closer to your redeemer. Bringing back the fear of the Lord, praise God for that. You may be thinking, how long was I out? How could I have not seen? I would encourage you, if that's you this morning, you've got got business to do with the Lord today. Some, Some praying, some confessing, maybe even some fasting. You're being called back home. Not that it ever wasn't your home being called back be sensitive to the leading of the spirit and let me caution you too you need to find someone that you can trust will elbow you when you start to nod off again you are not made to walk through this life alone you need to be able to rely on one another you need to find somebody who you can trust will throw a bucket of ice water in your face to revive you if necessary Someone who knows that the fear of the Lord is safe and wants to see you safe. That's, a, a, that's judging with a righteous judgment because that's a judgment that knows God is judge and fears him. Let's pray. Lord God, We fear humility. We fear being brought low. We fear shame and embarrassment. We fear the judgment of others more than we fear your judgment. Forgive us. Alert your people to the danger of forgetting the fear of the Lord. Bring us low that we may be brought high and walk righteously. God, as hard as it is, to pray prayers like this. We pray you would bend us, break us, mold us, shape us, and in doing so, Father, let us praise you for an awareness of your presence with us and your steadfast love for us. Your love never fails. Praise your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.